there. I'm Dr. Gabe Lowe, and welcome to the Hard Questions, No Answers podcast. This is a show that is less interested in answering life's difficult questions and more interested in the process of wrestling with them. This podcast is a forum to celebrate the messiness that makes us human. It is a place to invite the unanswerable questions because often it is precisely these types of questions that push us to dig deeper, to think harder, and to refine our approach to life. So, if you get to the end of the episode and you still have lots of questions, then I've done my job. I invite you on the pursuit of no answers. My guest today is DJ Chuang, who is currently working as an internet engineer, actively engaging with people through social media and podcasting, and lives in Orange County, California. He is an Asian American of Chinese descent and very grateful for the help he's had to support his personal struggle with bipolar disorder. Today we will be exploring the topic of shame, which is a primary subject of his podcast entitled Erasing Shame. Please enjoy my conversation with DJ Chuang. Welcome, DJ Chuang. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to have you on as a guest, uh, another fellow podcaster. And you have had going for a little while now this podcast called Racing Shame. And do you mind uh, introducing a little bit of you and, and your journey with that, how you got that podcast started and sort of what sure. it's about? Yeah, well, thank you for having me uh, visit with your podcast. I've been podcasting since 2012, so it's been quite a journey learning to connect with people online, and now all of us are having a lot of practice using Zoom totally, and yeah. <laughs> conference calls to connect with people. Um, I'm Chinese-American and grew up in Virginia. Uh, I have a background in computer engineering and theology and worked uh, as a pastor for five years, and then the last 20 years, I've worked with Christian organizations and nonprofits, mostly in the role of helping them go from print to digital. Mm. So um, a lot of my uh, work experience has been using technology to connect with people and through content and through conversations. And one of the things that happened when I transitioned from being a pastor to a non-pastor was uh, mental illness. I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder Mm-hmm. And uh, that's been that was 20 years ago uh, at the age of 33. And part of the reason it took so long to get that diagnosis was I was high functioning. And so mm-hmm. I didn't think I needed to get professional help to take care of my depression. And that was framed, particularly in a traditional Chinese family, it was framed as, oh, it's just a bad attitude or you need to be more grateful. Mm-hmm. And and so I probably lived with a lower quality of life uh, up into my mid-30s. But the past 20 years, um, I've managed uh, with medication and talk therapy. And then four years ago, I had a stressful episode that could be considered hypomania or mania, mm-hmm. where you have a very elevated mood swing thinking I was thinking I could do anything, and I did a lot that day. It was a very energetic day. Uh, I didn't sleep much the night before. I did wind up going on a shopping spree and uh, bought a lot of gifts for friends. And it wound up with me being in the psych ward for three days. Mm. And um, that was a very sobering moment, a very humbling moment to uh, realize I was there and I allowed myself to rest during those three days. And I guess on good behavior and stability, they let me out. And then it was about a nine month journey of, uh, very working really hard at recovery. And after the recovery process, which included adjusting my medication and, uh, be more active in my, uh, lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Uh, choices with exercise and with routines, daily routines. Uh, After I got through that, I was inspired to start the Erasing Shame podcast Mm. because I thought to myself in in my, let's see, at that time, 16 years of managing mental health, uh, it would have been great to have a place where I could hear the stories and be in conversations with other people who also struggle with mental health. 
mm-hmm. and to have that peer support. Yeah. And in my experience, most of the resources that have been provided have been books or conferences or courses or even documentaries or testimonial videos, but all of those things are static, whereas it would have been more helpful between the professional help to have something that was more personable and accessible. And so more relational. Uh, I started it. Yeah, it, it comes across more relational. And when we do our podcasts, we definitely have it conversational. And we always leave a door open to, for people to reach out and to contact us. And hopefully over time, people get to know who we are. And yeah, so that was uh, January, 2018. Okay. And we've had a different co-host each season and we're currently in season five now. And each, each season we have different co-hosts and different themes. So that's a quick overview of how I got to here where I am today. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And in the ways that I have gotten to know you or, or heard you speak, you are very open about your struggles with mental illness and how that's really shaped your journey. I'm curious about the, the shame piece, because I, I feel like it's something that we can all relate to at some level being human, but I think sometimes mm-hmm. it's hard to define what that is. And obviously people mm-hmm. have different def- definitions. So in terms of how you approach it on your podcast, you know, what do you sort of define as shame and what do you, what have you seen come to the table because of your podcast? Yeah. Well, you're a trained professional, so there's probably textbook definitions of shame. Totally. But yeah. I was researching. Uh, we, we typically start, well, one way we start our conversations at Erasing Shame is we look at an article or a piece of pop culture and have a conversation around how shame shows up. And then other times we interview someone who has experience with dealing with shame or has um, their personal testimony in dealing with shame. So, uh, during season one, we started by using a simple definition from Brene Brown, and she describes shame as being bad, whereas guilt is doing something bad. Mm-hmm. So shame becomes more of an identity and affects how we see our own self-worth. Mm-hmm. And uh, Brene Brown would say we're not worthy of love and um, that it's a painful personal feeling. But during our first season, we realized because we haven't talked about shame uh, as Asian Americans and as Asians in particular, um, shame is so much more than just being bad because there's the social element, the family element, and many other layers, uh, neurological as well. Yeah. And so... Um, in our first thing of the season, we just realized, wow, it's such a big black hole. It's such a big issue. Mm-hmm. We'll never run out of things to talk about because it's so embedded in our culture and human condition. And yet it is such a, <laughs> if I can say a, a life suck, it, it really takes the life out of us when we don't deal with shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's draining. Yes. And as we're both alluding to, it is a human experience that that all of us can relate to it on some level but as you mentioned there can be particular cultural elements that are related to particularly uh, as we share an asian american or even just an asian uh, experience of culture uh, i'm curious to hear a little bit about how you have encountered and, and perhaps another way to say it another way to sort of frame it is oftentimes Asian cultures can have a system around honor and shame and saving Mm -hmm. face. And and those are kinds of uh, vocabulary that are are used Mm -hmm. to describe some of that. So I'm I'm curious what your experience has been uh, both as an Asian American person yourself and also bringing on and interacting with other Asian Americans on your podcast. Um. To begin with, uh, there's someone that did a research about terms in Chinese that are related to shame. Hmm. And there's 113 of them. Wow. So like the they say the Eskimo have 70 plus words for snow. Mm-hmm. Well, our Chinese culture has 113 wow. words related to shame. <laughs> so it's that embedded in our culture. And 
it does refer to our relationships, our family, uh, our reputation in public, and uh, how we're treated in our society mm -hmm. as Chinese people. But back to how I've experienced shame and how I hear shame being experienced by Asians and Asian Americans is uh, we're never good enough. Mm. It would be the one, one point. So um, there's a stereotype of Asian Americans being the model minority and always striving to be perfect and getting the straight A and being the top of the class and being accomplished. But, you know, there's only one spot for that person. So what happens to the other 99? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> So the other 99 live in shame because the culture tends to put that pressure on. So it takes work. It takes quite a bit of work to go countercultural mm -hmm. to, to recognize that we have inherent worth and value because we're created in the image of God. Mm -hmm. And that comes through relationship with God. And that comes through relationship with people who are safe and empathetic and supportive to uh, reflect back to us that we're, we're more than our shame and pain. And then personally, I have my own struggles with um, my self-image and self-perception. So that brings shame. And uh, another way to describe shame is any time we feel like hiding. Mm, yeah, That's often, often related to shame. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the first reaction. Shame doesn't, I mean, shame shows up as a painful feeling, but it's not expressed. Uh, this is something I recently discovered through a conversation that all the other emotions tend to be expressive and visible, but shame is invisible. Shame is not expressed. So unless you as the person who's exper experiencing shame shares that with someone, you're carrying that load by yourself mm -hmm. and it is a heavy load. Yeah. And the longer you carry that load, your body will keep score and it will uh, take a toll on you, not just emotionally, but even physically. Mm -hmm. And there's been a number of testimonies and studies that show um, the, the cost and the consequences of shame that's not processed and dealt with. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It just sort of festers. Very much. Shame festers in silence. That's, mm -hmm. that's the phrase I was grasping for. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you meant to reference this, but uh, when you said the body keeps score, it made me think of the book that's been written on, on trauma and it goes by that title. And so mm -hmm. I, I'm curious about sort of your either experience or your thoughts on the interaction of, of trauma and shame. And I think particularly with your experience of dealing with a mental health illness, and, and as you shared, there can be a lot of really difficult experiences that go along with that. And one of them could be just how difficult it is being in a psych ward where a lot of your autonomy is sort of stripped away. And uh, I can imagine that can be a very isolating place where some of that shame can fester. So I, I'm curious if you could speak a little bit to what, what your experience in that isolation and sort of how, how do you even get out of that? You know, you, you've sort of mentioned a, a little bit along the way about trying to create some community, but I'm curious sort of what your experience is sort of being in that isolation and then also uh, finding your way out of it. Well, I'll answer it this way. I, for 13 years, I had to carry my own uh, diagnosis mm. of bipolar uh, in, in private. So it was not a public story until a interview from a journalist in the OC register uh, found my website interesting and the work I did being multifaceted as a church consultant and other things. And uh, he found not only the work I did interesting, but also my personal story that the way I'm doing my work and connecting with people is not just a quote unquote calling or personal interest It's a matter of life and death. And that's the way he framed it. And that's, uh, that rings true for me. And he uh, wanted to make sure I was ready to go public with my diagnosis. And at that time I felt supported enough and healed, healed enough that I was ready to take that next step of faith that 
even though employers are not supposed to discriminate based on mental health, Mm -hmm. uh, that's a natural risk factor that some employers will uh, consider when hiring or not. So my step of faith was, uh, I'm going to share this publicly, God, you're the one that's supposed to be the provider. So you'll have to provide for my livelihood. And so in 2013, I went public with it. Mm-hmm. And then um, when, when I had my crisis in 2017, uh, it wasn't so much traumatic. It was, or it didn't strike me as traumatic, though in my conversation with my therapist, um, they were saying that that kind of a thing is often a traumatic episode. Sure. I think just being, I think just having the crisis was the trauma Mm. and the nine month of recovery helped me to work through that trauma. Mm -hmm. I I just didn't use the word trauma that much, but a nine month recovery is pretty significant thing to um, work through. So I I would say it's that nine month recovery period that was working through the healing from trauma and, um, and uh, re kind of recognizing my limitation, my human limitation of how much I can go on autopilot versus being very intentional and conscious about my daily life and daily routines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, In hindsight, I see myself as a highly sensitive person. So I do feel more deeply, even though my family of origin and background has been more left brain and thinking based Mm -hmm. but part of my healing and recovery is realizing we're holistic beings Mm -hmm. and we have two sides of the brain and what's healthiest for me to get in touch with my thoughts and my feelings and living out of both sides of my brain Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and I think there are a lot of loaded terms like that, that we shy away from as human beings that make us feel icky or make us feel weak. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Even something as benign as saying you're emotional or sensitive can be uh, perceived in some sort of weakness. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think also you you mentioned at, at the beginning how it sort of flew under the radar because you are, were so high functioning and, and you were able yeah. to cope in other ways and mm-hmm. still go on, hold a job, be able to still function in society. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes it can be hard to differentiate between, you know, where is that line where I am functioning and healthy enough versus I need some help or I need to sort of reach out or this isn't good for me. You know, how has it been for you to try to figure out where that line is? Because I feel like even Mm -hmm. for those of us who have dealt with it or have walked in, I I feel like we're never immune from that uh, Mm -hmm. in the the Mm -hmm. respect of we always have to be aware that as you mentioned, we do have limitations. We are human. Uh, and so what has it been for you to try to mm-hmm. differentiate where is a healthy level of stress and a healthy level of, you know, I, I just got to push through it. I just got to, you know, keep my hand at the plow um, or mm-hmm. I need to give myself a pause. I need to sort of give myself a break or I need to reach out for mm-hmm. help. That is a great question. Not quite a hard question because I <laughs> wrestled with it. Totally. But it's a great question. The uh, first thing I'll say is I don't know of any culture that really celebrates weakness other than Christ. Mm-hmm. And so Asian culture in particular, we're into the saving face and showing our strong part in American culture too, in their own ways. Uh, and for me to navigate knowing when I need help versus when I'm okay. Traditionally, and up through my 40s, it was, well, if I could function, it's okay. Mm -hmm. And it isn't until someone's in crisis and could no longer function that you get help. Mm -hmm. And so that's what happened to me at age 34, that I could no longer function. I needed help. Um, Now, after my crisis four years ago, I've adjusted that boundary to say, I definitely have a blind spot and I've given permission to my wife to always call attention to when she 
notices something being off and I should get extra help. Mm-hmm. So I've given her permission to have the uh, yellow card to sure. hold that up and say, you need help and you need to yeah. do something. And I won't fight her on needing help thinking that I'm self-sufficient. And then um, third, thirdly, um, I see a therapist regularly. So um, that gives me the check-in where I can be vulnerable and have a safe space to process things that might be subconscious and things that I can work on to stay healthy. So those are the things that I do to uh, keep myself from going off the edge and putting myself at risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. And yeah, I think that it can be difficult and you're not necessarily going to get it right every time, but when you mm-hmm. do have those people, it's almost like having guardrails to sort of yes. sure not flying off the road. Yes. Oh, and there's one more thing I do. So because I, I have bipolar two, mm-hmm. I have mood swings that go up and down. So when I'm down, it looks basically like depression. And then when I'm up, it feels like I need less sleep and have more creativity and more energy. Mm-hmm. And so I do get about once every other month now, I guess some super ideas that I'm like, oh, this is going to change the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so to, to keep that in check, I allow the idea to simmer at least 30 days mm-hmm. so that I get off of the high cycle yeah, and to see if it actually is realistic versus just a unrealistic dream. So I've had a couple of those things happen <laughs> mm-hmm. and and i've had to uh, back off some of the crazy ideas versus the ones that actually work like erasing shame actually that's one that works mm-hmm. yeah and it's stuck yeah it's realistic because mm-hmm. so yeah, i give myself that 30-day window and i ask for prayer support to say yeah could this be a real idea or is this unrealistic mm-hmm. yeah so that helps me from doing something foolish totally I think in our day and age, a lot of people are familiar or uh, well acquainted with the concept of depression, what it is, and uh, sort of how it manifests, and uh, you know, even feeling a lot more open to either talk about it or take medication. I feel I feel like depression sort of lost some stigma over time, uh, but mm-hmm. I I don't think a whole lot of people are are super familiar with the other side, the mania side. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, as you described, there can be aspects about it that feel really good, and it can be hard to let go of that, especially when uh, you're saying that you're super creative. I, I would uh, be hard pressed to pressed to find somebody who who wouldn't want a little bit more of that, or who, who wouldn't want some energy to get, uh, you know, yes. 25 hours work of done in 24 hours. So uh, right. I'm curious a little bit about if you could just share, you know, what is it that uh, has helped you to see sort of where that line is? Uh, and, and obviously, you know, this is part of my mm-hmm. own profession. And so I, I'm, I'm well acquainted mm-hmm. with it. But, uh, you know, for mm-hmm. those listeners who might be a little bit less familiar with what mania is, can you mm-hmm. just sort of talk about, you know, where is that line between uh, a healthy creativity and energy and where it can sort of get you in, in trouble? Yeah, so healthy for me is what I can sustain over the course of two months because that's kind of the cycle or rhythm I have between the highs and the lows. Mm -hmm. And so creativity is a healthy thing that I can sustain long-term, not just when I have the spikes of mania. So that's a signal for me. Mm -hmm. And then um, the other thing is uh, partly because of my experience uh, to be on good behavior, (laughs) Um, because of the psych ward experience, I, I don't want to go there again, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that I stay on my medication and I stay on my good behavior in terms of my self-care so that I don't uh, do something um, super creative, as good as that feels. And it's a very elate, elative uh, state of mind, mm-hmm. and it is a very energetic time. So the energy is real in the sense that you can focus better, you have more creativity, you can be more productive, you need less sleep. And so it's, it, it is a very energizing time and it feels good to be there, but it's, I have to remind myself, it's not a healthy place to feed into that. Mm-hmm. And it's 
better for me to stay healthy for the long term. So that's what keeps me from going off the end. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that it's you're playing the long game that you're not just feeding into that quick and uh, sort of uh, transient feeling. Yeah. And, and then I've also had times uh, during the past four years where I feel like, oh, I'm finally healed. Mm-hmm. And that's not something I can determine. I, I have to remind myself, I can't tell that because my there's the mood swings in my brain that when I have those elations, my perception of reality is actually a little bit off mm-hmm. as much as I'm energized and think I'm seeing things clearly. Um, part of that needs to be kept in check. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's been a hard lesson learned, but I think that keeps me healthy. in our society i think that as a whole compared to where it was 10 20 30 years ago uh, mental health has become less stigmatized and maybe mm-hmm. in part to people like you who are, are willing to talk about it and, and do podcasts to sort of educate and to reduce some of that stigma. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm curious, you know, how you have experienced some of that uh, destigmatization uh, and also perhaps are there particular areas that you're seeing where we still need to make some progress, where there still is a lot of stigma uh, against things like mental illness? Well, it seems obvious that there's still a lot of stigma because people still feel it. Mm-hmm. And there's been a couple surveys in the church world where nearly half of churches still consider mental health and mental illness to be a spiritual only problem that all you need is Bible and Jesus to uh, manage it. Mm-hmm. And that's not true. So for both American churches and uh, churches for people of color, even more, uh, there's more shame and stigma with regards to mental illness. And we have a whole long history of how mental illness has been misunderstood. So we're in the shadow of misunderstanding of how mental illness has been dealt with, with electrocution and other kinds of things to try to control that. And now we're understanding our brain better through, through neurology and through science and coming to recognize how to better deal with mental illness. But I don't think we've come to a place where it's quote unquote normalized because when you look at the insurance world, it's still not clearly labeled as a quote unquote real illness or a real disease. It's still um, in heated discussions on behavioral health, and then it's not well-resourced financially mm-hmm. through insurance. And so it's just not being well taken care of from a medical perspective. So from a church perspective, it's still barely halfway there. Um, from a medical perspective with insurance, it's um, still very marginalized. It's not treated as equal to cancer or equal to diabetes. And then from society level, it's, it's an obvious sign of weakness. And though it's better to say it's an obvious sign of our humanity. And yeah, in, in society, it's okay to say you're dealing with cancer or you're dealing with diabetes. You know, that's very normal and there's no emotional reaction to it. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to mental illness, wow, you still get that visceral reaction whether it's in the workplace or in common culture. So I think those are three indicators that there's still quite a bit of shame and stigma mm-hmm. around mental illness that we, we have to work on. And yes, the conversations have helped, helped to lower that at the same time because of the global pandemic that has aggravated and triggered even more mental illness issues and symptoms and problems. We're just beginning to work on because we're still in the pandemic. And so, oh, and the one more thing is we're, we as a society are just Mm under-resourced. So even if we had everybody trained 
even if we had enough, well, we, we don't have enough trained professionals mm -hmm. in psychiatry and psychology to serve the needs of people struggling with mental illness. Insurance isn't there, accessibility, accessibility and availability isn't there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, around the world, like 20% of the world's population deal with mental illness every year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's one in five. I mean, so if we don't struggle with mental illness, someone we know probably does. Mm -hmm. Multiple people we know probably. <laughs> yeah. Well, if we knew, mm -hmm. but we don't know sure. <laughs> because yeah. it's hidden. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's a dire need and um, it's a huge thing to wrestle with and shame and stigma that keeps us from really bringing more people to health mm -hmm. and quality of life. Yeah. And yeah, it seems like for all the work that is put out there, it still feels like the goal line is still so far away, as you mentioned, all these different areas. Uh, and I think another area that can be tricky to navigate because of the evolution is, is technology. And, and you're, you're familiar in, in some of the ways that you are involved with technology and advances and mm -hmm. uh, things like social media. Uh, mm -hmm. And sometimes, uh, you know, as somebody who tries to keep up with at least some of the research, it feels like the research is just uh, falling further and further behind because technology moves mm -hmm. at such a rapid pace. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I'm curious, you know, what you've encountered in terms of people talking about shame and uh, sort of what you've seen in terms of how social media or technology sort of can perpetuate some of those feelings. I think one one big area that that's obvious perhaps is is the comparisons that people make because we're so inundated with social media images. But I'm curious other sort of ways or or maybe elaborating on that, uh, how you've seen technology play into this idea of shame. Well, technology, particularly social media, has given everyone a voice. Mm -hmm. And that's that's both a problem and an empowering thing. But the problems tend to outweigh the empowering things because partly of our human nature totally. and yeah. our fallenness. And so um, there is that comparison thing. And so that manifests itself in body shaming. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have the perfect body, whatever that perfectness is, then any imperfection and is a reason people will weaponize and use against someone and put them to shame. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think social media has uh, certainly brought out this, has played out in this concept of public shaming mm -hmm. and public shame where you use words to put other people down or you use images to put other people down and to call out their imperfections, to call out their mistakes and making people feel less than. And that's a very hurtful and shaming thing to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, there's that aspect of shame. And then the, another aspect of shame could be just the shamelessness where people have people have no shame and no boundary or no decorum or no sense of their impact on other people. Yeah. So people have some people have become shameless mm -hmm. about how they hurt other people with their words and images. And that goes all the way to the top of our American political system. Mm -hmm. Our previous president have said very hurtful, negatively impacting and shaming things against many segments of our population. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we've gotten a more polarized society. Uh, racism is alive and well, the ugliness of all that. Mm -hmm. And then the public shaming that comes through cancel culture and people's imperfections. Mm -hmm. So it's it's manifested way beyond just mental health. Totally, yeah. And that's unfortunate, but that's just how ugly 
shame is and it festers in silence and that's why we need to have healthy and honest conversations that bring light to it and bring healing for people yeah um when you were talking about the shamelessness of that can be pervasive uh, it made me think of that uh anonymity that people can have on online where you don't have to or at least immediately you don't really get any backlash because people can't find you or you're hiding behind a screen name there are those mm-hmm. high profile cases as you mentioned of uh, mm-hmm. our previous president but i think mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times there can be a lack of accountability because of the way that the the internet works and mm-hmm. as you mentioned you know the the way to combat that is to uh, bring things into the light and and to talk about things, and so you know I wanted to sort of explore that with you in terms of, on the one hand, there needs to be accountability, there needs to be responsibility that there, uh, that's essential mm-hmm. for being able to have good relationships, and at the same time it can be very. Uh, difficult to navigate that terrain because I think we are we can be so sensitized to shame uh, even if somebody says the exact same yeah, exact right things to us in terms of coming at us with uh, compassion and with grace and saying hey it's okay let's let's figure this out I, I think that we can still, uh, wage that war within ourselves. And so I, I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of even if somebody says all the right things to us, I, I think sometimes we can still fight that battle. Uh, do you have any thoughts or suggestions or, or how have you sort of wrestled with that in terms of, you know, what is what can be that missing piece when we are trying to bring it to light, when we are trying to expose the shame, uh, but perhaps there's still that holdout within us. There's there's several different ways to go with your exploration there. Uh, on one level, it's how we trust people or how we don't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book titled Talking with Strangers, and he shares a dozen different stories of how uh, each of us have a certain instinct on how we trust or don't trust strangers based on visible and invisible cues and signals Mm -hmm. of what the other person looks like or how they behave or the tone of voice or body language. Uh, basically out of our own life experience, as well as our personality, some people will just not strike us in the right way, while other people come across uh, safe and inviting. Mm -hmm. So both of those people, like you were saying, can say the exact same things, but one will be received and one will be rejected. And so in a world where we're we're more pluralistic and we're exposed to more kinds of people than we have because of the online public space, it overloads our brain. And what they're saying in neurology is our brains are lazy and we want the simple answer. Totally. Yeah. And so part of the polarization of our society might be reflective of how our brain is functioning, that to sort through all the noise, it's easier to sort through on what we like and what we don't like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Actually, on social media, we have that like button. So there's like and then don't or don't like. On Reddit, you have the upvote and the downvote. And so that, that quick response allows our brain to process the complexities of life. And yet the thing is, we as human beings and our relationships, we are complicated people. Mm -hmm. So we have this duality that's working uh, with and against each other. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, our brain wants to simplify and conserve energy because it takes energy and nutrition and brain power to Mm -hmm. think. Yeah. And so we're trying to conserve energy because we only have a certain amount of energy per day. And, And at the same time, we realize in ourselves, there's a word, sonder. 
which isn't used very much, but it really captures how complicated each person is. So the example is if you knew what I knew in my head, you can appreciate why a person is struggling and responding the way they do with their words and their actions. And, and that's to prompt empathy for someone else. Mm -hmm. Even the person with the worst behavior, that there's something that happened in their lives that's causing them to be so abrasive and so not self-aware. Yeah. And um, our, our hope as, as Christians anyways, is uh, anybody is not beyond the reach of redemption. Mm -hmm. But boy, some people sure push that line pretty hard far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that's helpful. And I think that as you alluded to in, in your own story, there can be such a temptation to take the quick or the easy way. And in, in a situation like I was describing, it might be the case that there is uh, no easy way either to talk with somebody who feels shame or when you yourself are feeling shame. And uh, it can be sort of this vicious cycle where you look at yourself and like, why can't I accept somebody else's love or why can't I accept somebody else's? And then that just sort of piles on more and more shame. But uh, mm -hmm. I think... Um, what you said is very helpful in terms of, and I think also it, sometimes it only takes one person. Uh, sometimes it mm -hmm. just takes that one right person to say the, the, the thing that, that hits us a certain way that's different from everybody else. Uh, and, and sometimes it just takes a little bit of self-compassion and patience to say, okay, I'm not going to just get over all of my life's trauma in one day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The um, the image that's that was helpful to me in recovery, and as I've shared it with others, it seems helpful to others as well. Is I see, I see my life of feelings as a dashboard, mm -hmm. like a mind palace. And so when the when the angry light comes on or the happy light comes on, there's something behind it. Mm -hmm. It's a signal, but the signal in itself isn't the isn't the end all. So mm -hmm. when the shame light comes on, the shame light is kind of like that generic check engine light. Yeah. And so what triggered that shame or what caused that light to come on, you have to investigate and explore and find out what, what's behind it. And so the shame light used to automatically cause me to say, what's wrong with me? Mm -hmm. That was my first instinct. And I've had years of practice uh, making that connection. And I've, as part of my recovery towards health, uh, that's not a good connection. That's not a healthy connection for me to make. Mm -hmm. So by using the image of, oh, the check engine light is on, I can say, oh, it's just the check engine light. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I should pay attention to it and see the mechanic yeah. at the next yeah. pit stop. And I don't have to let it cause me to derail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I've uh, found a better way to manage shame and to realize, okay, it, it's signaling something, but I don't know what that something is. And it sure is a bright light. And I want to pay, pay attention to it as soon as I can, but it doesn't need to derail me and cause me to pull over the side of the road and just panic like it used to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that analogy. And I think to extend that further, you know, I think when that check engine light, shame says, oh, it's a junky car. I need to just throw out the mm -hmm. car. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, yeah, when, yeah, yeah. When in reality, as you're pointing out, it, it there could be multiple reasons why that check engine light is coming on. And mm -hmm. it's an invitation to investigate as opposed to jumping so quickly as we often do as human beings to yeah. that sense of there's something wrong with me and uh, yes. I, I'm irreparable or I, I'm beyond yes. saving. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Another thing that you mentioned that I wanted to touch on was uh, the polarization within uh, our, our society. And I, I think that it can be very disheartening to a lot of people. And I think uh, going back to what we've been talking about a little bit with Asian and Asian American 
the place that we inhabit within society, I think sometimes we can feel like we're sort of caught in the middle between minority and majority culture. And you use the mm-hmm. term uh, model minority. And mm-hmm. I, I think that even though I think some people might have initially thrown that out to be sort of a, a quote unquote compliment, uh, in reality, it sets up that comparison game again of, mm-hmm. uh, well, you're better than X, Y, or Z minorities. Like, why can't they be more like mm-hmm. you? Or it sets up that uh, comparison game within uh, the same culture where, you know, we're looking around at other Asians and saying, okay, they're successful. They're not. Uh, they're, they got mm-hmm. it together. They, they don't. And so I, I'm curious what you have encountered in terms of your conversations with other people about uh, this notion of the model minority and what you've come across as other things that can be unhelpful about that mindset and and perhaps uh, ways to either reframe or do away with some of those unhelpful notions. Well, the most popular episode on the erasing shame is one that's titled The Pressure to be Perfect. And so what the model minority myth does on one level, and there's many things that it impacts us negatively, is that pressure to be perfect. Mm. And it doesn't allow us to attend to the parts of our lives when we do struggle and we do have weaknesses. And all of us have struggles and weaknesses. That's part of the human condition. Perhaps not all of us have the struggle to the degree of mental, a diagnosable mental illness, Sure, but we all deal with stress and anxiety and moments of sadness and grief and those things that are harder, that take more work to deal with. And the model minority, yeah, it just, it puts an ideal out there that is unrealistic for the 99%. Mm-hmm. And then even for the 1%, we just released an episode with a life coach who's very holistic and transformative. And she describes in her work with high achievers that even high achievers deal with shame. Mm-hmm. So across the board, uh, everyone's dealing with shame and we're just hiding it in different ways. Mm-hmm. And the model minority is just not helpful to be healthy in our self-perception and our care for our neighbor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it, it's just a loaded, it's a loaded thing. And, and yet our, our culture at large celebrates the successes of celebrities, the lifestyles of the rich and famous for those of you, your listeners are old enough to remember that TV <laughs> series. And then now there's a, there's a TV show, I think that's celebrating the, bling of Asians that have a lot of wealth and they flaunt it. And so it's, it's um, yeah, based in short, it's just not a healthy thing. I think it's helpful to recognize that in, in so much as uh, even the people who might quote unquote benefit from that system, they're still not immune to shame. And I think in some ways they they can even deal with it uh, more than people who who don't have that kind of status, you know, whether it's through a, a sense of imposter syndrome, like I shouldn't be here mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. or an anxiety of uh, what if I lose that status, then where's my worth? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that it can be, just as toxic to be successful as it is to feel like you're striving. Yeah, well, so articulate. <laughs> um, I think that y- you uh, have referenced Brene Brown, and I am also a huge fan of, of her work. And I initially came across her in one of her TED Talks, and uh, uh-huh. I think she's done a lot to really uh to not just uh, expose shame and, and to mm-hmm. sort of talk about that, but I think 
uh, conversely to promote a sense of vulnerability. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think yes. that sort of goes hand in hand with what we're talking about. And I just sort of wanted to acknowledge that and, and sort of bring that up. And to sort of engage with you on sort of this tension that can come up where, uh, as as I alluded to before, I think there can be this, uh, well, I, I think there is one, a need within all of us to be seen, to be mm-hmm. understood, even if not to achieve anything, but just to be known and just to be seen for yes. who we are. But yes. then shame gets thrown into the mix and it becomes this war between putting yourself out there and being vulnerable and risking something and trying to protect and trying to protect from, you know, perhaps people who who weren't so charitable in our life or uh, mm-hmm. from the notion that what if I get hurt again or what if I get hurt at all? Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm curious to hear a little bit about how have you interacted with that tension between vulnerability and protection of, of where is that? And again, I think it goes back to that dividing line of, of where's the wisdom Mm -hmm. of choosing people who are safe and people who can Mm -hmm. handle it and and can hold it. Mm -hmm. And I think there are also other people who can be, more easily vulnerable in those of us who have trust issues. So I'm curious sort of mm-hmm. what your experience with uh, either personally or, or talking with other mm-hmm. people about this idea of vulnerability and uh, navigating that line between um, wisdom and, and self-protection, but also taking a risk and being vulnerable. Yeah. That's a very thoughtful question. Yeah, very poignant because um as we learn to talk about our feelings and to share them, it's a scary thing to do. It's, it's almost a leap of faith. Mm. And for many of our family backgrounds, we don't get a lot of practice in talking about our feelings. And so we don't have the comfortableness or the confidence to, to know how to do it. And we don't know how to do it. That creates anxiety. Mm-hmm. And then when we, we don't get practice. We don't know where the line should be or could be until we cross the line and get hurt because someone yeah. uh, didn't handle our feelings well or gave us a short, pithy, flat response on how to fix you instead of allowing the feeling to be in um, being non-judgmental and being caring and so with that as a backdrop, it's not limited to Asian families. As I trade notes with non-Asians, they, they too don't have the family background or the experience of talking about feelings. And so what people commonly do is they numb their pain mm. with alcohol or other maladaptive behaviors yeah. to numb the pain because it is painful to have feelings that are unprocessed. Now, um, I'm at the age of 54, so I've had more life experiences in learning where that line is for me. Mm-hmm. And so one part of the answer is you, you kind of learn over time where that line is for yourself, sure. because that line is different for each person in terms of how comfortable and confident they are to share more of their feelings and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessary as a line of, I don't want to frame it as a thing of maturity, but I, and though that's part of it, but uh, I think it's better to say what's healthy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so that line's going to look different for each person. Learn where that line is through experience and practice over time as you get more exposure to different kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And you know when you've crossed that, when you get a reaction that causes you negative feelings instead of positive feelings. So your body, your bodies and your feelings are the indicator of when someone is safe and is able to handle your story and your feelings and when they're not able to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to, uh, 
when it comes to social media, the language they've been using is a safe space is when people are empathetic and non-judgmental mm-hmm. and uh, listen attentively to what you're sharing of yourself. Mm-hmm. So con- a little more concretely, that's what it looks like to be a safe person. But there's many people who are just not safe because they haven't done the emotional work themselves. They have blind spots. They don't recognize they have blind spots. And um, people that tend to be judgmental, they're hiding behind a different kind of shame. They see the world black and white, mm-hmm. and they like to enforce a fix-it mentality on people because that makes life less messy and less stressful for them, but they're hiding too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't want to dehumanize them or demonize them. Sure. The, them. <laughs> for those who are unsafe, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I, I feel, I do feel a sense of sadness for them that they're having to deal with life mm-hmm. in such an unhealthy way. Yeah. Uh, and I think that goes back to the dashboard analogy that you framed mm-hmm. in terms of listening to yourself and listening to your gut when you feel like, oh, you know, I, I think a light's popping up, you know, maybe this person isn't the best person to bear my soul to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for those people that, uh, you know, we don't want to other, but they perhaps aren't in a place to unpack or to bear or to come alongside you, as you mentioned, they might need to do some of their own work before they have the capacity to hold something mm-hmm. that you bring to them. Yeah. You mentioned, and and uh, I think this is another part of your story of being a pastor mm-hmm. and uh, studying theology, and uh, we, we haven't touched on it yet, but I think this can be another cultural environment that unfortunately shame can <laughs> infiltrate. And, and mm-hmm. uh, I think some people have had very shaming experiences either in Christian communities or through the church. And mm-hmm. I think that unfortunately the church has done a lot of harm in this area of sh- shaming certain people or shaming certain groups. Um, I'm mm-hmm. curious to hear how your experience as a pastor and in Christian communities has shaped your ideas, both I think about shame, but I think also what can we do to undo some of the damage that the church has done, unfortunately, in the name of Christ to, mm-hmm. to hurt people through, through shame. So I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are uh, from your experiences mm-hmm. as a pastor and also being in Christian communities. Well, that's that's worth a whole episode in and of itself. Seriously, <laughs> totally. yeah. The, um, the I wrote a book titled Multi Asian Church, and one of the subpoints was the characteristic of shame, and that how that manifests in the ethnic Asian Church and Asian American Church. The the culture because partly because it's hierarchical and honor and shame it. it automatically reinforces the idea of what's honorable and what's shameful. Mm -hmm. So if you're not living up to obedience in Christ and having perfect attendance at church and avoiding the visible, obvious quote unquote sins, then you're put in that shame category and need to repent and you need to work harder at your sanctification. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another level of it is the traditional church has been too dogmatic about doctrine Mm -hmm. to the neglect of caring for people where they're at and i think we're we're in a culture now that's much more sensitive to our humanity uh, on the feelings level perhaps too much to a fault and what we can point towards is John 1, 14, where Jesus came in the fullness of grace and truth. And so let's have that be the guide for how we do church, that it's full of grace and truth. So truth is more foundational, I think, the way I'm at in terms of how, how church could be and should be. Church, uh, truth is the foundation and the framework for who we are as people relating to God. And then grace is how we live out those truths and how we deal with one another's 
weaknesses and humanity and that church perhaps church should recover its history of being a sanctuary you know we don't hear church being a place of sanctuary we hear of church being a place of dogma or ritual or burdensome in our common culture sure and so uh, perhaps church can recover its brighter light of uh, healing and being a sanctuary and a safe place mm-hmm. for people to come as they are and to be received um, so that Christ can minister to them and restore them mm-hmm. in the fullness of their humanity. And I was thinking, and uh, your, your parents' church, I've come to appreciate a lot more over the years. And I was first introduced to them back in 1993 when I was uh, candidating as a pastor there. The um, your, your church, Chinese Church of Thousand Oaks, is one of the few, and I could count them on less than one hand, one of the few <laughs> Asian churches that has a mental health ministry. Mm-hmm. And f- that's a very demonstrable way for how church can be a sanctuary. Mm. Yeah. For the most obvious, the most um, probably statistically the mo- largest area of felt need, mm-hmm. as much as church growth people want to tell us about, hey, serve the needs in the community. Well, mental health is a obvious need for so many people in so many places, and yet churches are not the place where they really foster mm-hmm. care for that. I think that would be a huge next step for the church to really serve people well. Yeah. Yeah. I like that word that you use sanctuary. You know, I I think even in just the historical way that people could claim Mm -hmm. sanctuary when they were being persecuted in some way, Mm -hmm. I think both, I think now it's perhaps a little bit more metaphorical, but, you know, I think what you're doing with your podcast, that was sort of the vision that you described of creating a sanctuary for people who felt persecuted or stigmatized or needed a place to, to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. and on that note, uh, you, you mentioned the uh, Erasing Shame podcast, uh, which is still going, and you also have a, another podcast. And as we're wrapping up, I just want to give you a little space to uh, describe that and to also just tell people in general where to find those podcasts. Sure. Thank you. So I, this year, I started a second podcast called Generous Asian American Christians. And the URL is generousasians.substack.com. I'll send you a link so you can put it in the show notes, make it a bit easier to click through. Mm -hmm. It's a weekly conversation talking about generosity, giving, money, faith, and philanthropy. And I Mm -hmm. co-host it with a friend of mine, Jeff Lee, who's worked in the donor development world, currently with World Vision for nearly 20 years. And I myself worked for a private family foundation for 10 years. And as part of my healing process and discovering what God has for me into my 50s and beyond, kind of the second half of my life, uh, that was another, in addition to erasing shame, uh, the other theme that has surfaced for me is generosity, that we as Asian Americans, many of us have been very gifted educationally and also wealth-wise, but I don't think we've we're known for our generosity. And I think um, from the data, it also tells us that we have more wealth than we know what to do with. And it doesn't do much good when it's just sitting in investments or under the mattress. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the invitation to talk about generosity is because Jesus talked about money. So we need to talk about money too, or learn how to. In a typical church, uh, pastors might talk about money once or twice a year. And yet at the same time, our society is bombarding us with hundreds of messages about marketing and consuming and buying more to try to ease the pain and the itch that we have for more stuff. And yet we we hear so little about giving and the freedom and the abundant life that God has for us when we learn to give. Jesus' words, and there's only two passages in the book of Acts where it's the letter read, the letters are read, 
And one of them is, uh, it is more blessed to give than receive. And part of my journey over the past five years, we as a family have learned to become more generous and we've experienced more freedom and joy and fun in our giving to support the causes um, that God wants to do, not only spiritually, but also bring good in the world. So uh, please tune in and we'd love to have more people join that conversation so that we can unleash more resources for God's work here on earth. Thank you. Yeah. And as with all my guests, uh, any links and resources that they share will be posted in the resource library on my website. And thank you to DJ Trump for joining me today. Thank you so much, Gabe. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in to the Hard Questions, No Answers podcast. Still have questions? Oh, good. I was afraid we answered them all. For more information about HQNA podcast, visit drgabelow.com. That's D-R-G-A-B-E-L-O-W-E.com. Additional educational materials recommended by my guests can be found in the podcast tab. And for the updates, news, and behind the scenes, follow HQNA podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at HQNA POD. HQNA podcast is independently produced by Gabriel Lowe. Music is Cocktail Fun by Stock Music 331 found on Pond5. And logo design is by Kenny Lowe. Stay tuned for new episodes released each Wednesday. And thank you for joining me on the journey of no answers.